Welcome to the podcast for ambitious women. I'm your host, Dr. D. Franey. If you're a leader, innovator, or change maker, you belong here. Because around here, ambitious women are encouraged to have big, bold, unapologetic goals and dreams, and given the tools to execute and achieve them without the pressure, hustle, overwhelm, or burnout. Ladies, it's time to unlock your potential. Welcome back, friends. I hope you're having a beautiful day. I am so excited about today's interview with my new friend, Shayla. She is so rad. I have a massive girl crush on this lady, and I can't wait to tell you about her so that we can get on with the interview so you can fall in love with her as well. So here we go. Shayla Brecken is a disruptive leadership strategist and founder of With Shayla Inc., a strategy firm devoted to teaching small town women and rural communities how to think strategically to achieve meaningful change. With Shayla Inc. develops and leads the best practices in small town strategic development for change making initiatives. They contribute to disrupting the rural stereotype so that more women and girls living in smaller communities can see their value and opportunities no matter where they choose to live. Shayla believes in a change-making ecosystem. She knows that when women rise, communities rise, and when communities rise, women rise. Change-making women are integral to the change-making potential of a community. A community's ability to create an environment for women to thrive becomes essential to women's capacity to be change-makers. Shayla is on a mission to expose and optimize the greatness of rural women so that more women and girls can see it to believe it's possible no matter where they live. How amazing does she sound? Oh my God. Buckle up. Here we go. It's going to be so good. All right. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so excited to be here with you and Shayla today. How are you today, my friend? Oh, D, I am feeling as fabulous as I always do on a Monday afternoon. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing so wonderful. I like I have been looking forward to hanging out with you today all weekend. <laughs> Absolutely, you maniac, you in Los Angeles. I'm feeling like very jealous here in Canada. It's very cold and damp these days, so send me some sunshine, would you? Uh, oh, it's overcast today. It's May. It's gray May. Apparently, this is the time of year where it's overcast. <laughs> yeah, so we met through Instagram. That was really fun. I was kind of like, I felt like I was like Instagram stalking you a little bit. I'm like, who is this woman? She is so cool. I need to meet her. And then we had a little date on Zoom and all of my suspicions were correct. You are so fun. And I, I'm really excited for everybody to get to know you today. So First things first, in the hot seat, have you always been an ambitious woman? Mm, uh, yeah, it's like in my <laughs> blood, woman. Absolutely. That's why we magnetize to each other online. <laughs> You're my first like fangirl on Instagram where we actually like made a relationship after a DM. So here we are. And that's why, because you're ambitious, I'm ambitious, and we run on the same frequency. So yes, yes, in my blood, I was literally that little girl who was taking a look at all of her like Barbie clothes and accessory inventory and deciding what I could sell at the end of my driveway. Okay, <laughs> make more money so that I could buy more accessories because I needed to keep up with the trends. Like honestly, monetizing whatever I had since like pre double digit age. 
Yeah. Oh my God. I love it. So how did you get to where you are now? Tell us a little bit about your story and your journey. Oh my goodness. How long's the podcast? <laughs> Honestly, the, like I have, like I said, I have always felt like a builder, a creator and someone who saw things differently. You know, like even in school, I used to mouth off to teachers because I'd be like, that's not right. This is what you said is incorrect. And I would always be that person that was a bit contrarian and definitely like maybe adopted a title of ship disturber. So I had this whole persona of like, like very um, academically strong. I was involved in everything. I had this community feel, but I was definitely a rebel since the beginning, you know, and even my name, I was that my name Shayla is, is actually after Che Guevara, who is like oh. this revolutionist. Yeah. My dad was like a hardcore hippie and was like, Oh, you, we need a revolutionist in the family. So I, I have literally embodied that like impulse perfect flawed visionary leader um, persona since the beginning so it started there with like my sort of namesake and and how I felt inside but like the first piece of work I ever gotten involved in was swim coaching so my mom was like a big swim coach and we were I was an athlete and I got some I had some health issues as a kid so I was like I'm gonna strategize my way out of that problem and I became a coach instead of a swimmer so I started working with kids and really loving that. And that just brought me naturally to like a public speaking framework. I loved competing in public speaking. I would compete all over my province of Ontario, um, pitching, um, speak, speaking on stupid topics. Like my very first speech was all about high school relationships and how they change from grade nine to grade 12 and what you do together. Hilarious. Oh my gosh. So amazing. <laughs> so like long story short, I'm a gabber box if you can't tell. So I just love speeches. I love keynotes. I love speaking. So I was just generally drawn to business school. I was really strong in math and I was really strong in just teaching by this time. I had been working with students in grade 10 who couldn't pass math class, help them to graduate. I was feeling the love. I thought I was gonna be a teacher. And then I went to business school and I literally was like, nope, not gonna be a teacher, <laughs> gonna be in business. <laughs> like I can do both. I can have like sort of that, you know, fun way of being, but also I could teach in my business. Yes, right? I could actually teach inside the business as a service provider instead of maybe like a hat maker or whatever. So at the end of the day, what happened was I went to business school, I took my four year honors degree, and I was like, on the student union, I did the business society, I won some awards, and I was like, yes, this is it. And I entered corporate. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so I entered corporate. I was really focused in sales positions, which clearly <laughs> because of my Barbie doll days. Um, so yeah, we ended up, I ended up in sales, really successful there, but you know what? Empty. Yeah. Empty. Like great paychecks, great feeling when you close deals, great to support another millionaire making another million. And I just kind of went, it, like not for me, not for me. I wanted to, I studied international economics in my business degree. And I worked under this amazing prof, Natalia Brown, Dr. Natalia Brown, who 
um, came from uh, another country and she came here as an immigrant uh, through the US. And I just loved working with her. Like she had this perspective on global issues and stuff that was keeping uh, sort of developing countries down. And we studied this together and I wrote an undergraduate thesis about why women are the poorest people on the planet. And this just made me inspired to want to take my skills and create change with them. Um, not just money. Yeah. Change, like social change, community change, change for women, change for any underrepresented group. And you know what? That's, that's what I did. I pivoted. Yeah. I left corporate. I escaped. Yes. Oh my God. So do you feel that like just I don't know about you, but my experience of like seeing the world and seeing how it's not working and seeing how it could be so much better and how like, Hey, if we just implemented a few of these changes, it would be radically better for people like that. Like seeing the world that way, I felt very different because of that. I don't know. Did, was that, did you have that experience or. Oh, D you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> like, I'm drinking from your well. Yes. I spent about 15 years focused on underrepresented groups, specifically in small town immigration, um, anything related to anti-racism. I was looking at intersectional feminism and building strategies for Canada, the province of Ontario and our region's governments on how they can do it better. Inclusion, yes. you know, belonging. Man, it's so inspiring to work in that field. It's my life's uh, teacher and also my like ultimate body of work, like where I want to play for sure. Yeah. So I, my brain won't let go of like your thesis and like the reasons why women are the poorest. Can we, can you talk about some of those? Cause I feel like it would probably help some of our listeners to, to hear that, to know that. Oh, sure. Oh my gosh. I'm reaching right back into my early twenties here. But <laughs> what I'm going to say is um, what I really studied was how different cultural norms, uh, expectations, the way that countries run even um, create limitations and um, actually points of oppression for women to access opportunity to make informed choices. So one of the things that we looked at in the study was some pretty specific things like that you in some countries cannot enter a bank to go open a bank account for your business if you don't have a male chaperone. Um, there's also some in some places of the world, women are restricted from owning or having a driver's license. Mm -hmm. And so how do you then have the mobility to be able to do that? But what's more important is that around the world, education for girls is also one of the biggest deficits um, is that the child because of cultural norms the female child is seen predominantly in some some cultures some countries they look at this as uh, her primary role is to support the family from a uh, water food and and housekeeping perspective domestic traditional domestic roles and so what this means is that if say one child in the family can get to school, the daughter or the, the, the girl is usually second to the son because of these cultural norms of hierarchy mm -hmm. of gender. Um, but there's also the reality that the girls are also supporting the wellness of the family and, and, and in some cases eat last or drink last. And if you're also learning last, uh, the opportunities become limited. Right. Yeah. But that's 
across the pond, we also have limiting norms right here. Yes. <laughs> you know, right here, right? So that's why it's so important to talk about this. I'm so glad you asked that question because, you know, I think the pandemic might have showed us a few <laughs> things about that um, with respect to the disproportionate effect on women. Yeah. You know, like this, it's just an incredible thing to observe watching women um, sort of feeling like they should be the, the caregiver at home. They should be the homeschooler at home. And they've defaulted into those roles. Like yeah. something in Canada, they reported it was like 60,000 jobs were recovered by men while 20,000 were lost by women. So it's like so disproportionate and we have to understand that this is cultural. Yeah. Culture is just the way we do things around here. And the way we've been doing things around here is telling sort of women they belong in this lane and maybe yes, business and yes, ambition and yes, career, but also home and mm -hmm. caregiving and child raising and homeschooling. So it's the and also's <laughs> that are keeping women, you know, sort of unable to access entrepreneurship, unable to access the promotion or the effort they might need to strategize that, that wiggle room. Right. So do you have any answers on the, and also's? Oh my gosh, the, and also's, you know, <laughs> what? the, the first thing that I teach women inside my dig in program is that you have to look at what you're doing, list everything that you do and ask yourself two questions who told me to do this Yes. and who does it benefit? Yes. And I am not suggesting that we should only be doing self, you know, self-directed acts. Women are compelled to serve. Women are compelled to support and nurture, but we have to understand that it's a choice instead of a should. Yes. You know, these expectations that we have built up in our minds, that we've been groomed to believe that we have to exit the world as a beautiful, like into the world as a beautiful, put together, thin, accomplished, bougie looking woman to feel valued. And yet we also have to be super mom, super housekeeper, drive the fancy car and have all these shoulds wrapped around our decisions every day. And you know what? Separating that is what, where we must begin. Oh, what am so I doing? It's so true. That's like almost one of the first things I do with my clients as well. It's like, what are, what are our priorities? And is it because we chose them for ourselves or is it because they were given to us? And also you can put some of those down. You don't have to keep them all. And the ones that you do keep, like keep it with the intention because you want it. And it like, it's so funny because the actions are often the same, right? We, some people might choose to continue um, caregiving in the way that they've always caregiven for their children or family members, but that intention of, no, I choose intentionally for me to do it in this way. And it's in alignment with how I want to show up in the world gives you power. And it's like, it's so subconscious too, right? Like a lot of that, you don't even realize that like before it was because somebody else told me I had to do it this way versus no, I choose to do it this way and I want to keep doing it this way. Oh, I think I need you to come in and facilitate this class. Woman. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. This is exactly where we must begin. And let me tell you what I really see as the, the anchor behind this kind of activity is that we have to be able to separate what it is that we really want 
and what it is that we feel compelled to do, right? Mm -hmm. So like compelled to do isn't always you writing the rules. Yeah. Just because you're compelled to follow a rule does not mean you are the author of that rule. And so I really love the idea of like tasting something, you know, make a choice, put it in your mouth and let it roll around under the tongue for a minute and see if you actually want it and then spit it out if you don't. Yeah. And like, I realize that I'm like packed with privilege here. And the reality is that not all women have the ability to just spit it out of their mouth. Right. They're in situations that they are sort of limited with their ability to wiggle. But I, we have to start with examining do I really want to do this? Does this serve me? And does it serve me fueling myself so that I can then in turn serve? Yeah. If I choose to do that. Right. That's so true. I mean, I think so many of the people that are, listen to this podcast want to serve, want to help others, want to have meaning and contribution in their life in a bigger way. But the thing is, is when we're so stuck in all of the shoulds and doing all of the things are the things that we want to be doing, it prevents us from being able to help so many other, other women, other, other people in the world in the way that we are uniquely able to do that. And almost like because we have privilege, it is a beautiful thing that we can ask that question, that we can put some shit down so that we can pick up the work that we are supposed to be doing to solve the problems that, that we see with the solutions that we have that aren't available or open to other people. Yeah. Like, how are we going to change the world for that dried lemon in the back of the crisper? You know, like we need the juice to squeeze onto life. We need the moisture. We need the fuel. And like, this just reminds me of one of my favorite stories. It's a fable about a goose and a farmer. And this farmer, she owned this beautiful goose and this goose, like she loved it. She would pet it and stroke it and love this goose. And one day this goose was feeling so good. She popped out a golden egg. Okay, this golden egg was gorgeous, large, heavy, full of beautiful, beautiful 18 karat gold. So the farmer took it right to market, sold that egg and was like, yeah, goose, we're doing it right. They're doing it. So then more and more, more and more golden eggs started coming out of that beautiful goose. And that farmer, she just kept taking them to market, selling those eggs, making the stuff happen. And she got real distracted. She got real distracted, that farmer. She went and bought herself a new tractor. She got some new coveralls and boots. She got a couple dogs. She expanded the farm and she got so distracted that she stopped loving and caring for the goose. And guess what? The goose eggs started softening. They started getting gray. The goose got really sad and eventually just stopped laying eggs. You wanna know the point? We're both the farmer and the goose, baby. Yeah. We're both. We have to take care of ourselves if we want to create eggs that change the world. That is the only way we have to create a system, a strategy that protects that friggin' goose. And shooting on yourself all day with the expectations external to you is the number one barrier channeling energy away from the women's goals and into the goals of others. Yeah. Boom. Like day, goose every protection day. insurance, like we need it. Yes. <laughs> That's what we call it with Shayla Inc. is goose protection insurance. Goose protection insurance. I love it. <laughs> I should go 
egg ladies. <laughs> yeah, get that goal, right? And that's the thing is that, you know, I, I talked about money, but what I mean is that the women we work with and that clearly you are involved with are change makers. Yes. These women value their businesses far beyond growth rate, profit margin, market share. They look at impact. It's like a river system. They're charging the money with soul and purpose and they're distributing it and collecting it with all those values behind it. So what, what, how could we ever just be about money? Yeah. No, we can't. We're about a lot more. And oh, our you're giving me chills. And, and you know, like it's some of this conditioning that is so fucked up is that like, you're selfish. If you take time to protect the golden eggs, that if you take care of yourself first, take care of your needs. And it's like, it's such bullshit because like the people who are listening here want to go out and change the world. They want to make a difference. They want to make an impact. So like protecting yourself, protecting your eggs, taking care of you is like the most selfless thing that you can do. Yes. Uh, Oh, that is just ringing in my ear because (laughs) someone said to me recently, the most selfish thing you can do is not take care of yourself Mm -hmm. because then you'll be in the, on the carpet when you want to serve, when you want to be called to action, you'll be in the carpet. And so I think it's like, yeah, girl, like I'm so buying that I'm cashing that in at every step of the way, because this has truly been my key to success. You know, I own four businesses. It, the fourth is an enterprise. There's no way you get there. And I did that while working full time for a college, there's no way you do that on pure hustle alone. Yeah. You have to get strategic. You have to adopt principles like the Pareto rule where mm-hmm. you're thinking about targeted effort, right? What is actually unlocking my success and cutting the rest of the fuckery away, like by Felicia, you know? <laughs> and so I think that's a really important part, but this conversation can't be had, D, if we don't recognize that the pull of expectations, shame, and fear of judgment is huge for women. You know, like, God, girl, I was attended- so suffocating, so suffocating. Oh, I attended this amazing event called G Day, which is like a girl's coming of age when they get their period for the first time. And it's a really cool, like, indigenized activity unbelievable and when the women get pulled up they uh women allies that come with the young girls they get pulled off into like a panel setting where we get to ask q a's with like a sex therapist uh early childhood educator anyone that would be like a great ally for you raising your teenage daughter and um i was in this room and the woman doing the icebreaker exercise was a movement kind of specialist or whatever she was teaching us how to move and do it a whimsical way to kind of ungoal in the day or whatever and she had me come up and take this um it was like an elastic band like the ones you use to do resistance training mm-hmm. and she had me hold one end and she held the other and as we added the pile of things I do I stepped away from her and the tension grew and grew and grew between us and we got to a point where it was so taut I thought maybe she got whipped in the face if I let go and she said to me now I want you to tell me what you do for your self-care for your investment in yourself. And the aim of the exercise was then for me to step forward and demonstrate how that tautness becomes more relaxed when I invest in productivity of self and productivity investing in myself. And you know what? I answered her question. I said, oh, I get a pedicure every month. (laughs) And the women in the audience 
shamed me. They were like, oh my God, how could she possibly do that? How and I heard the murmurings in the audience as I was doing this like volunteer thing. And I just thought, you know what? This is also part of the story mm -hmm. is that we need to normalize women turning inward. We need to normalize that that's actually what we need to encourage our, our ladies to do around us, the women around us. And you know what? That moment I felt so small and like that I should have presented as a martyr and said, oh, I don't do anything for self-care. And yeah. I didn't, I was honest and I said it. And you know what? I needed women around me right there that were like, teach me how you make space for that. Yeah. Instead of shaming me for it. So I think we really need to understand our role as women supporting other women and not judging other women for the fact that they might have different goals and desires than us. Yes. You know, I grew a business. I don't have children and I don't have a husband. I made those choices because I wanted to drive my life in a different way. Do I condemn mothers and housewives and whoever else? What? No, it's about choice. And the thing that separates, uh, you know, women who have and women who have not is information to inform those choices. Mm -hmm. So I don't care what your choices are. I just want you to know all of the options the exhaustive set of options for you not the ones that our world presents which are yeah. narrow and the very pure. narrow prescribed path <laughs> ah you got it girl oh my god we could go on that was an excellent like, question so where do we go from here oh my gosh i want to talk about what we do how do what we do, we do this now what do we do other than the amazing work you're doing inside the rooms with your clients right these are huge conversations helping women to ditch their shoulds and pick up their needs and speak up and do it unapologetically. I know you do this. This is like <laughs> coming out of your body right here live in the interview. But what I know is that we have a call to action mm -hmm. to the broader community, right? Because you can't be change makers in a river system if we're not flowing water down to the, the point where it's needed most. Yeah. Right? So it's about creating accessibility, right? So in my programs, we have a ladder. Everything from a hundred bucks up to 10,000 bucks so that it come as you are. And we even have a scholarship fund to fund your access. Should you not be able to financially contribute? You know, we, we try to create tables, programs where women can step into leadership roles through our relationships with NGOs and government funding, free program access, right? We have four or five different uh, program streams that are completely government funded so that we can offer women the chance to learn, the chance to find their community, right? The chance to develop professionally while they're still grinding in all of the also's, right? Yeah. But I think one of the key things to think about is just how do we get comfortable and courageous enough on a regular basis to speak up? Yes. Oh, it starts there. Amen. You know, and like, and practice speaking up for yourself first, right? Like yeah. what, what everything that I just heard you say in terms of the different ladder of options in the services that you provide, the fact that there are so many government sponsored, NGO sponsored resources out there, there's literally someone who can help you do what you want to do. There's probably already a resource out there or someone who can connect you with it. It's just first saying, no, this there's there's something in my heart calling me for more. 
And I don't have to know all the answers, but I bet there's somebody out there who could help me with this. And just taking that first courageous step and saying like, I want to craft a more intentional life than the prescription. Like this prescription, this pill is toxic. I don't want to swallow it anymore. And I, I think that that's, so many people have awareness of that, right? Like they're, they've done all the right things. They follow the path. They're just, they're not happy. They're unsettled that they, they know it's not working. But the first step is just to say, no, like I'm willing to be a little bit uncomfortable to do it my own way, to, to find the way that feels right. To even like accepting the idea that you're allowed to feel good. Oh, <laughs> I just like exhaled in that moment. That was so, it was like going to church woman. That was beautiful, like beautiful because you are so bang on that I should want to feel good. Like how many women do I talk to that are just like, I hate my job. I tolerate my life. I go to bed and I repeat. Yeah. And like, why is that happening? Right. It's, it's so important to look at it. And I think like, you know, even the, the little things that we do, um, matter, right. The speaking up, the, the, what I like to say, running in packs, when you, when you go to decision-making tables so that you have maybe that, you know, you know, in like university or whatever, high school and girls go to the bathroom together. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's how it should be in politics. And like yes. uh, making tables is like, bring a friend if you join a board <laughs> so that you can like feel really confident and courageous that someone there is going to be like, yeah. And what she said, you know, and kind of echo your points. And I think that's a really powerful move. Um, these little things, right? I wrote this article on LinkedIn that's called uh, take a seat or take a stand. Oh, and if you're it. not invited to the table, bring a fucking chair yes. so, or stand on it and scream, whatever. Uh, that's kind of what I like to do. But I think there's this whole idea around what are the simple little ways that women can start to think critically about their choices. And that does not just mean in your life. It means also in your business. Yeah. Like when I sit down, the woman on the right hand of my, of my, of me as the CEO in the business, she's a feminist marketer. She builds feminist businesses. That's why she's my right hand because she's my controller on all things, feminist agenda inside the business. And we operate from an intersectional feminist agenda because I recognize that as I make 70 cents on the dollar, a woman of color is making far less. So we come at it from this perspective And so this is really important to us. And one of the things we chose to initiate in the firm was a feminist fund for all of our employees, where they basically get to access a stipend annually that they can direct in any way they need to in their lives, whether that's childcare, uh, a new blazer for the presentation, fuel for her car, car repairs, new furnace, new roof, whatever it is so that she does not have to toil to close the gap that could easily be covered if she wasn't doing all the and also's. And so that's really important to us. And one of the things that we would like to create community-wide and we are in the process of developing is a micro-granting system for women in rural areas so that they can actually get that 500 bucks that will make the difference between them running in the local municipal campaign or not. And I think that that, and not, not just that, taking a board seat, volunteering on the PTA, whatever decision-making role that you want to assume, your access to resources should not be the thing that is preventing you from getting there. 
So what, that is what we are all about. And this, this, this is big. This is, these are big moves and where we really direct the flow of our profits. But man, you don't have to play that big, no. right? It's like, let me tell you the change that can be made at a PTA. You know, just volunteering at your local uh, civic organization, your sports clubs, these are real grassroots environments for women to step forward and normalize the unapologetic use of their voice. Yes. Well, and even like rejecting the woman as martyr archetype. So like if you are, if you, so I was always like, be the change that Gandhi quote. I'm like, I went to work like for nonprofits and like burnt myself out trying to change the world. Right. And then I was so sick, had to quit and really was like, um, worked on healing myself. And I'm like, Oh, be the change. I'm like, I have to be it first. And when I am the change, when I am a walking embodiment of the change, that is what changes the world. And that's where like, that's how I get, got started in my own business. Right. Where it was like, I healed myself and I'm like, Oh, I can show so many other people, these tools. And like, anyone who's listening, like even rejecting woman as martyr and showing up in your full power and intention, um, with bound healthy boundaries, with the ability to say no, to not people, please to, to, to reject all of these practices that come along with being woman as martyr. If you just showed up as a PTA with a healthy boundary and said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do the bake sale because I have this other stuff going on, or even just no as a complete sentence, because no is a complete sentence and you don't have to have an excuse. You can just say no, right? Like, do you think that maybe the other women around you at the PTA might notice and start to think things, do things differently? Like that is a way of using your voice too, right? Ah, Dr. D, you are so good. It is about representation. It's about normalization. It's about repetition. And then it becomes less necessary for courage, right? It just becomes, it's like a water slide. It slips out of your mouth now and has a period, not a question mark. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Sometimes an exclamation mark. (laughs) Oh my God. But I really want to touch on your uh, terminology there. Woman as murder. Okay. I talk about this. One of my favorite hashtags is um, the one we developed it's called hustle is history. Oh, and yes. It's like, yeah. Yes. Give up the grind over with overwhelm, like success, <laughs> success, find fulfillment, babe. Like, honestly, this is what I want to talk about. Are you my Canadian doppelganger? We are. I think okay, cool. who your father. <laughs> no, <laughs> so true. Um, but truly, 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 this idea of glorified exhaustion. Mm-hmm. One of my, like, actually my inaugural one-on-one strategy client was the founder of a feminist law firm. And she's a criminal defense lawyer. And this was like the creme de la creme of first clients. Literally, we were sketching on her uh, dining room table before Christmas 2018, putting the little uh, feminist symbol in her logo directly front and fucking center. And I was like, are you sure? And she's like, there's only one way. And I was like, yes, we're doing it. So this whole idea of like the bold trailblazer is great, but there's a million other ways. But she, her big thing was talking about the glorification of exhaustion in just the field of law. 
She goes, think about why I, she started the feminist law firm was because she only ever saw men behind the top of the pyramid and all the support work was happening by women down at the base of the pyramid. And she goes, that needs to change in all directions, right? And so this idea of glorified exhaustion has been sort of on the tip of our tongue this year at the firm, really helping people to reject it. And where we find, and thank you for all of your dedication in the nonprofit sector, and I'm sorry that burnt you down, because this is the norm. Yeah, This do more with less culture in that sector is disgusting, and it absolutely debases the incredible value that women do and men do in that sector. And so this is actually our flagship product. It's called Mission Aligned, and it is a strategic planning professional development course for executive directors and nonprofits. Because this this is the thing, no one's teaching change makers how to get strategic and they're being cut and slashed funding people, volunteers are aging out, all the donors are strapped, everybody's trying to hustle hard and the change that they are directed to, the cause that they are compelled to solve is sitting in the same statistics, in the same burnout, candles at both ends, and no one has that ability to like get the traction and the smooth strokes they need to do that good work that is so needed, be paid well enough, and also to feel like you have the capacity to carry it out in a do more with less culture. God, girl, I'm sorry you experienced that. I'm here to change it. This is the whole point of like, really, I spent 10 years in the nonprofit community development sector as a consultant and still work in that field. But you know what I hated was watching my clients shelve my document and let it collect dust where it had like groundbreaking uh, strategies in there. But do you know why? And it's not a judgment. It's not a judgment of those boards and those municipal governments because they didn't have the tools to pull off trailblazing because I, I I you know I just approach change with a with a match and a bottle of gasoline you know <laughs> like burn it down baby because ash yeah. is it's fertile soil so I always believe in disruption but I think it's like you got to be really brave as a leader to disrupt a system to its core flip it on its back and watch it wiggle while you figure it out You also need a ton of capacity to learn and know the best practices as they evolve instead of going back to 1997 for your leadership training. And you also need to pair yourself with outsiders who can see your shit and call you on it, right? So like this idea of a capacity course, that's what our sector needs, not more consultants coming in at five figures and leaving them high and dry with a plan they can't execute. Yes. Yes. I mean, talk about burning it down. I mean, that was like the moment where I left. It's so funny. This is full circle moment, right? I got clear on what it is that I wanted. And I knew that health had to be like my top priority. And then I woke up one day, I mean, like I'd done my whole PhD, wrote my dissertation about nonprofit stuff, right? Like I put myself in like an expert role in that field. Like I was, I was already COO. I was on the CEO track. Like, um, but I was like, I will never, I woke up one morning, I will never be able to be healthy in this sector. And if that's truly my number one priority, I had to walk away. And so I walked away from that career. And, and like, I always knew that I was born to lead and serve and, and make a difference. But I was like, I can't do it in that capacity. I can't do it in that field. But I really walked away thinking, 
we needed to burn it all down and start over because it's just broken on so many different levels. There's so many toxic cultural things like that and, and external expectations of how that work should operate. That was just, I just felt it was like, why even try to fix this? Like, we just need to start over. We need a reset. And I feel like like on so many different things, we need a reset, but especially with like non nonprofit work, that sector. Oh, that is everything to me. I am like, my heart just goes out to you, Dee, because I'm devastated that yeah. a leader of your caliber was pushed out of the change-making business to save yourself. <laughs> like that is the saddest thing, but I'm going to tell you right now, I've been there. Yeah. You know, like I have a stupid slide for one of my presentation that lays out like the 15 things I was doing in 2016. And it was like, it was gross. It was like that. It was like 70 hours a week mm -hmm. of commitments, like scheduled work. Yep. And I was like, that was what it was like to work in nonprofit because you just were everything to the business. You were everything to the change. You were everything to the, to the volunteers. And it's so crazy to me because it's like everybody understands why nonprofits exist because there's a social need or an imbalance or something that needs to be corrected. And yet we treat the people, the professionals in that environment like they're doing the most superficial, unvaluable work. You know, the pay remuneration is insane. The pace is insane. And it's the most important fucking work. <laughs> like it's just such an imbalance. And I think that that is also a place that can be corrected when more women normalize rejecting the martyr and getting strategic about what they can do and advocating for themselves. You know, like one of the women I work with is the manager. She's been the executive director of a chamber of commerce for the last 25 years. And her salary has not moved more than 5%. How does that happen? How does that I don't happen? Know, I'm about to like jump out of my seat with rage. Oh, it's gross, right? It's so gross. So yeah, D. That would have never happened to a man, by the way. Never. But that's what I'm saying, right? Is like, how do we actually value community change-making work on the same level that we value profitability? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like historically nonprofit work, that change making work has been women's work and it like, it's just the whole women as martyr do more with less like it, it's, it's no surprise to me that that is why it is the way it is right because this is, again culturally. Yeah, this, this is how we view and value the role of women in society. Well yeah and when we have all the and also's in our mouth it's pretty hard to exhale. Mm -hmm. let alone inhale so yeah it's it's really important to think about this and I you know I think there are so many ways that women as a collective as a collaborative can truly just lean in so that mm -hmm. cog turns you know like that's where I truly see our our position of sufficiency you know my niche is in rural small town like a hundred percent, you know, because I grew up in a small town. I lived in cities. I abandoned that lifestyle. I went back to the country because like genuinely I like, you know, moving to the cottage 20 seconds after closing my laptop, not packing the car and then driving two hours to do it. That's just a lifestyle thing. 
But what's really important about my story is that I've also never felt limited yeah. by the population sign or by the postal code. Um, that's that's Canadian for zip codes. And uh, <laughs> basically, what it what it what it was was this like beautiful story from my childhood of my grandparents. My my dad's parents, my paternal grandparents, came from Toronto which is, of course, Canada's largest city. And uh, she was the daughter of a butcher, downtown, affluent kind of family. She went to finishing school. Um, and my grandfather came from a very impoverished household with an alcoholic father. And he was in university to be an engineer at the time. And he avoided the draft because of that. And uh, in 1945, he graduated and was recruited to this amazing nuclear research facility here called Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, formerly known as Atomic Energy of Canada. And he was recruited there in 1946 to take a house. It, it, the job came with a house, oh, wow. okay? A piece of land and a house, a deed and a job offer. And that was the only way he could get my grandmother to marry him because he needed stability <laughs> and all that. But it's the beautiful story is like her getting on the train and they they literally take the train into the bush. That's what they called it, into the bush. And they she almost didn't get off. Like she was like, <laughs> you know, Where because am like, I? she was just trained on how to vacuum holding a martini for her husband waiting for him to come, you know? So she was really feeling like an alien. And but what frankly, what I remember the most important thing about my childhood was that my grandparents embraced the bush. And at one point in my life, uh, they had a little maple syrup operation, like how fucking Canadian do you get? <laughs> and they would tap like maybe a hundred maple trees and make a couple liters of syrup for the family every year. And this little boil, like it's like a boiler, right? So you have to like yeah. light a fire and, and condense the sap, uh, the sap. And I remember distinctly as a little girl watching my grandmother in her wellies, like her rubber boots and her red and black lumberjack uh, kind of reaching over the fire to roast a weenie. And as she did this, out popped her 12 bangles and her perfectly manicured hand and a glimpse of her Chanel skirt suit. <laughs> and I was like, girl, that is me. That is absolutely how I feel is that who I am is who I am and who I choose, where I choose to live has nothing to do with the size of my ideas, my ambition, my ability to create change, and absolutely my position and value worth as a woman. Yes. Um, and nor should it predict what kind of role I fulfill. So this is why I love working in small towns and rural areas because resourcefulness is typical of rural areas. Mm -hmm. I know a farmer down the lane who figured out a widget for his combine that separates crop when they're wet in a better way. And it's just sitting there, this piece of innovation, the machine himself. <laughs> why isn't this a product? Right? Doesn't even realize that he could make a lot of money with that. He doesn't so even it's realize. just something he figured out to fix his own problem. <laughs> yeah, because innovation through resourcefulness and collaboration is what's typical of rural and small town areas. Because we didn't just have public transit or a cab to hail. Yeah. You know, hitchhiking became a thing because of rural areas. Like I'm <laughs> telling you, we're figuring it out. I'm not encouraging anyone to do that. But I think it's like we always kind of solve problems together. You know, if I left my fireplace on, I call my neighbor, she breaks in my window. That's not happening where my brother lives at Danforth and Pape in Toronto. That's just not happening. So we have a unique thing here. We also have unique challenges. 
but I think it's the limiting mind that I really want to tackle. That's the yeah. underrepresentation. It's like every public program in Canada, every ministry initiative, every business initiative is all favored in urban, densely populated areas. And when we're talking looping full circle right back to access here, that's why women like you and me are needed yeah. because we are the grassroots accessibility to no limit normalization. Yes. So good. And like, and there is so much possibility. I mean, we have the internet and electricity and we, we can connect with people all over the world who might want to have, like, might want what we have to sell, what we have to offer. And like you said, like ideas don't know zip codes. They don't know postal codes. Um, so why not? And like, there's so many amazing people who live in rural areas, but these communities are dying out. It's so like, I love what you are doing by creating access and, and reminding these women in these communities of what is possible for them. Oh, and that's why we call our community of women, the rural rebels, because <laughs> it's like, we reject the stereotype that it's like barefoot and pregnant or bust, you know? Yeah. If you want that, go for it. But the stereotype isn't for everyone. And this idea of being really conservative, that's not for everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of, you know, just the, you know, the whole concept of sort of traditional domestic roles is not for everyone. Those, those sort of like classic stereotypes about country life or isolated country life and things like that. It's not it's actually to be romanticized, not to be sort of seen as a terrible thing, but, you know, we also have to recognize that rural areas have a lot to learn in some areas. Yeah. You know, I spent 10 years devoted to helping small communities to attract newcomers, immigrants, because Canada's population growth is seven eighths coming from outside of our country wow. through immigration, you know, one eighth only through the birth rate. And so we have to recognize that that's why the mm -hmm. aging demographic is happening in rural areas and why there aren't job creation uh, strategies in place and why we have a workforce deficit because we just have not attracted newcomers. And there are many reasons for that. And I spent 10 years studying and learning about this and I won't go into the fine detail, but it's mostly because newcomers, people from another country see Canada as three things, MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and everything else is sort of unknown. And yet they know about Canada goose jackets, maple syrup and hockey. Um, <laughs> and they see, yeah, and they see Canada as a multicultural place, but we have tons of areas and, and even in the cities where racism exists, mm -hmm. where underrepresentation prevails. And so what the challenge is though, is that rural areas don't really have by statistics that it tells us the story clearly that they have not attracted recent immigrants, mm -hmm. which means that the movements from the 60s, 70s, and 80s were predominantly white, European, uh, sort of British, you know, UK origin countries. And now the predominance in Canada is Asian countries, Middle Eastern countries, um, African countries and even South Asian or uh, South American countries. And so what we're recognizing is that those populations are saturating 
in the big cities and coming all piling in there, which is so awesome. We're glad to welcome them. But what they're experiencing is underemployment and uh, like doctors driving taxi while the rural areas are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to recruit doctors. So there's a fundamental disconnect in Canada that we call this regionalization. I won't go straight into the academics here, but ultimately what's happening is that rural areas have no lived experience of attracting new recent immigrants. So that means they have lack of daily exposure, which means they might be willing to receive people and willing to serve people, but they may not be able to. How do we know the unique needs of someone diverse? How do we serve them? How do we welcome them? How do we integrate them into our communities? And so these prevailing challenges that, that sort of rural areas face, nobody has figured this out yet. And that's truly why we started this company was because my consultancy work revealed this. My community development work pointed to the challenges economically being based in a cultural deficit. Yeah. And so if we are going to spend $1 on economic activities without dealing with our baseline first, it's a wasted dollar. Like I truly believe, like we just wrote this strat plan for a municipality near here who is a real up and comer area, amazing opportunities. And we were able to convince them that any investment they would make in economic development without focusing on the underrepresented groups first would only uphold the privileged and would not create the opportunity for every member of their municipality to take part in community engagement, which means that now they're left out, which means that now they can't open a business and back full circle to women being the poorest people on the planet. If you don't have transportation, a job, a living wage and childcare to get you down your country lane and into your business or place of work or into your community to serve, you don't have anything. And yeah. so we are inspiring municipal governments to focus on the rising tide that will lift all ships, then economic development. Yes. And you know what's so cool when you do that is that the people just make the businesses because they can. They what? have the stability. You know, who would have <laughs> fucking thought? So it's like we've been so focused on taking that upper tier and moving it forward. Mm -hmm. And if we just redirect our energy as decision makers in small towns to upholding and, and figuring out how to value the base of our pyramid, the people who are the least represented, the most marginalized, and stop doing that and serve their basic needs, they flip from survive mode to thrive mode. Yes. It's like, just simple it, math. And, and human decency. It's not, I mean, like what's amazing is like, people are like, oh, it costs, that costs money and, and we're not going to get an ROI on that. It's like, no, you get a be way better ROI on like human decency than anything else. Oh, you are so right about I that. Mean, and it's even like what we've learned in the adverse childhood experiences, that huge study is like the more that we can do to support young children, the less we spend on the back end incarcerating um, substance abuse and all of the other crap. And it's like, that's just human decency, like helping women take care of their children, helping a community thrive, helping people like, I don't know, like it's been really hard being here in LA. Like I'm, I'm you know, living in Germany normally, but like we've been like just the amount of people homeless on the streets that are like suffering, you know, like what? And meanwhile, like, oh my God, my, 
somebody was talking about how they were selling those NFTs, the non-fungible tokens, which is like stupid internet stuff that they're like putting to auction for millions of dollars. These rich people that have all this money, they're like, I'm going to buy a GIF with all my money. And I'm walking around the street looking at people who are like suffering. And I'm like, why? Why? You don't need the original GIF. Like, can we just be decent? Like, can we help everyone? Like, can we lift communities up? So when you d deliver a, a report like that, how do the people um, take that? The lawmakers? The <laughs> oh man, you know what's funny about this story particularly? And like- Sorry I, for the rant. I'm like, no, like what no, the fuck is wrong with us? Like, no, I love your passion woman. This is like why we need to hang out all the time. Um, but like, no, I'm going to tell you this story. So this client uh, was really interesting. So I was able to make a really deep connection with the mayor. Um, and so we strategized on how to present this information to the council, which is always the kind of group you need to really reach. And so what happened was we released the plan. The original plan is like 68 pages long because I am one of those people that I like to propose a strategy, but I also like to provide all the academic backing of why that was selected. Because I just think for a community taxpayer money, you better show up with the rationale and the, and the reasons why. So then we kind of boiled it down to like a quick sort of like 10 pager document that they could refer to more easily. But when I came to the community to do the delegation to present the report, um, it was adopted uh, four to one. So there was one naysayer, okay? And I think the other four really like they were into it, but maybe they totally didn't understand it. But basically what happened was um, the press interviewed the one naysayer. Oh, of course. And so the, he the headline the next day said, uh, council adopts plan, counselor feels it's too complicated. So this was the feedback, too complicated, right? So then two weeks later, we proposed five projects, five synergistic projects that would deal with the rising tide. It was like a broadband solution, um, housing solution, a community food kitchen and food bank solution. I go on. And within two weeks, oh, and by the way, she said in this uh, interview that she couldn't imagine sitting down with an average community member and explaining this plan to them, having them understand it. And I said, nice to say about your folks, you know, right. like, um, not intellectually stunted. So anyway, within two weeks, two weeks of the adoption of this plan, three out of five of the projects had been mobilized by community volunteers. Wow. Not too complicated. So let me tell you, Dee, is what I experience is that the leaders, there is a fundamental reality that if you are sitting in politics, if you were on the ticket and got elected, you are packed with privilege. Mm -hmm. I studied this uh, about five years ago, but one of the most important things I uncovered about politicians and politics for women is that politics is leisure. If you have the time to think about how your community is run, it means you have the gift of leisure time. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so by nature, who ends up on the ticket are people who have time and resources. And so therefore, the people who are sitting at elected tables come from, maybe they had lots of 
life experiences up to that point. But in that moment, when you are elected, you are strapped with privilege. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is when decision-making tables like that, especially political ones, make decisions without using the voice of the most underrepresented, marginalized people in their community, if they don't inform their decisions with that, they are only making choices based on the lens of privilege. Mm -hmm. And so of course they're going to direct uh, decisions to economic development, to supporting business, to supporting professionals and to moving the food bank around precariously wherever they wanna put it, mm -hmm. right? And making the move constantly and people find it. So like this is what, like this particular group. So uh, one of the challenges that the neighboring community had was they were doing a community survey and they questioned the hours of the library in the survey. Should we be open less to save money? And that's because they don't have a metric to grab the benefit of a library to the community member. Like if you don't have home internet, that's the only way you're searching for a job in a small town. If you don't have friends, that's the only place you're going to for a social interaction for the day. And they were literally questioning the $200,000 line item on the million dollar budget. And I'm like, that kind of thinking mm -hmm. leaves out the people where the water is needed most. Yeah. And so what we've done by making decisions like that is we have eliminated, immediately debased the value that those people could bring to the community by pushing them aside with our decision-making default. Yeah. And the other reality is, is that we don't recognize that that person, should they feel stable, might be able to build that business that changes the game for your community, that community group for youth that will keep them here, past post-secondary, whatever. So it's like, it's like having a fleet of trucks and just like leaving 30% of them in the lot because there's a couple scratches and a flat tire here and there. Yeah. No one would do that in a business. So why would we do that to people in a community? So that's really where we come from, from this perspective, this municipal client, they heard it. And you know what? Now they're moving. They are getting it. They built this cool dashboard. We built this like idea of like a filter decision filter does it serve the people does it serve the mission does it serve the vision does it hold our values does it take care of the planet does it take care of the budget and they have to filter their decision through all those questions before it pumps out a vote amazing that kind of stuff this kind of tool this kind of training this kind of development and plan creation is what small communities need and like, I'm not saying we have all the answers, but when we get the chance to work with a community organization who is woke and figures it out, even if it's not like right away, they see it. They see the impact right away. Yeah. So it's so true, right? When you create solutions that are for everyone. Yes. How quick everything changes. Well, that's right. And what they also don't realize is that the economy, the economic impact <laughs> of those changes are huge, right? It's the, it's the leading indicators to economic development that I want to focus on. Like this amazing author in Canada, he wrote this book called um, 13 Ways to Kill Your Community. And it's all these like classic small town municipal mistakes that are made. And it's like, imagine this, there's a mom who has two kids and she drives 45 minutes to bring those kids to programming after school, right? Mm -hmm. What is that mother doing while Johnny's at swimming and Jill's at hockey? She's shopping. 
Yeah. She's grocery shopping. She's signing up for other stuff and all the money is leaving the community. So when we don't have place-based grassroots programs, when we don't have access like transportation or after-school food programs, we just don't keep our gifts, assets, skills, people, human resources, and physical resources in the community. They drain, they go out, you know? And it's just, that's what creates the stagnation that we're talking about, the tumbleweeds. Yeah. The tumbleweeds. Be, there's no need to be tumbleweeds. No need for tumbleweeds. I don't like tumbleweeds. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. So it's a big job, D. We're on a big mission here, you and I, and all we the other. We are. It's but, you, but like, I just always, and I don't know. This is where my my friend used to like make fun of me for having a bleeding heart. But I think it's true that like we, once you get enough people thinking the same way and moving in the same way who enough people embodying the change you create critical mass and once you get that critical point like it's just that tipping point right like you literally need 51 percent to tip the scale you got it like we don't need 100 percent to like make massive change in the world we just need 51 percent of people being like wait no this isn't working for everyone how do we make it work for everyone in our community this isn't working for a woman how do we make it work for women that's right exactly i mean beautiful study did you see this one where they like literally just changed the plow the plowing system? no <laughs> oh my god so this amazing community i can't remember the name of it right now but basically they learned that their snow plowing schedule, sorry, California, their snow plowing <laughs> schedule was causing stroller based women two to three hours of ener extra energy spend a day. Wow. Because they were plowing the sidewalks and residential streets after the business sector. And so all the way, all the business sector was able to drive their cars right into the garages, but like, and they could have, if it wasn't plowed probably, <laughs> but the women with the strollers who were at home doing, getting to walking their child to school or to daycare had to back up their routine by an hour and a half to be able to accommodate for the precarious sidewalks and streets around their homes. The city changed the plowing schedule and literally these women were just like, what is that? Like they just had all this time. They started volunteering. They started helping out at the school and it was less stressful on the kids. You know, the morning routine can be brutal, right? Yeah. Getting kids out the door, way less stress. Mom's feeling better, whatever. Instant success, plow schedule. It's so mean. And I, I think that's so true, right? Like sometimes people are like, well, what can I do from where I'm at? I'm just a plow operator. Well, I don't know. Think about the ramifications of the plow schedule. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Right. Oh my God. I will never forget. I made this presentation in a military community one time, a military unit, and it was on international women's day. And it was all about bias. Okay. And it was a room full of men. Like yes. Yes. Men. I'm sure that was really fun. <laughs> oh, it was super fun. oh my God. So as like an homage, I couldn't talk. I had to begin with women's issues first because it was women's day. So I started with this like decision map, you know, those things where it's like, if yes, go here, if no, go here. And it just like, kind of, you know, you go down the decision map. So I literally put up a scenario young woman dates guy gets pregnant she's working minimum wage full-time okay not a serious relationship 
what happens? Choice. Pro-choice, pro-life. That's your choice. Yeah. Right? So if you go pro-life, <laughs> the next choice is figure out how you're going to raise that baby. Right? Figure out if you're going to be able to get a partner to help you. Who's going to help you? What job is going to support that? What mat leave are you going to be able to acquire to take the break you need? And then you're basically grinding through mm -hmm. as a single parent. Okay? If you're pro choice and you choose to uh, terminate the pregnancy, you now have to deal with the emotional reality of that. And so now, no, regardless, you're carrying that consequence, that emotional deficit through the next steps of your life, which is trauma, mm -hmm. which can cause substance abuse, which can trigger negative relationships, which can trigger depression, right? But those options are also available to us if we keep the baby. <laughs> Right. We, we could have our body breakdown. We could have no ability to work while we're pregnant and nursing. Um, so now we're in a position where we can't earn money and our mat leave has run out. Now, what do we do? Right. So there's all these now, what do we do's? And the men in the room were just like fucking jaw on the, on the ground, like dropped because never in their life had they ever thought that that was the decision set. What did they think the decision set was? Well, they knew the first decision, keep oh. it or not keep it. But beyond gotcha. that, they couldn't actually map mentally the consequences. Gotcha, gotcha. They never and thought about it. So they never thought it beyond, yes. beyond this choice. How does it affect her? Mm -hmm. Right. Like one of the women that I support in um, uh, an immigrant women program, she was sponsored by her um, then fiance to come to Canada. He had the job and he sponsors her to come right under his umbrella as a sponsor. Mm -hmm. They got pregnant, had a baby and he got turned abusive while she was living with him the first year in Canada. And, and then they broke up. She, she couldn't stay in the relationship. And so he just dropped her sponsorship. And there's nothing in Canada's immigration system that protects her. She lived in a shelter for four years, for the first four years of her child's life oh because God. she had no immigration status to get a job. She had no ability to get out of the country and go back. And she, and because she was trapped because of the sponsorship application and she was raising a child in a shelter and has a master's degree. Okay, so like what I'm telling you here is that the intersectional realities of what people face, yeah. we need to learn these intimate stories. You know, I talk about this so much in my work is like one day I had, I woke up, okay? Like self-reflection moment here. I went to this conference and I did this diversity inventory activity mm -hmm. where they had me write down the first initials of five people I would call if my tire was flat and they couldn't be my family members. So I wrote down these initials and then they revealed the other side of the chart and it was all characteristics, privilege points, language of origin, country of origin, sexual orientation, income, education, all that. Mm -hmm. And we had to fill out the chart. And you know what I discovered, Dr. D? Was that all the people on my list were women in their thirties who made over 75 grand a year with a university education and who were white and English speaking. Do you know what that tells me? that I live in a small town. And it also tells me yeah. <laughs> that I need to do better. Yeah. 
and that I need to surround myself with people with different lived experiences so that I even have a chance to check my shit and look at another person's experience and go, you know what? I'm never going to step into the shoes of a woman of color. Uh, I'm never going to step into the shoes of someone who identifies as trans and I'll never be able to live that life. But God damn it, am I ever compelled to represent their stories and help with my privilege to close those gaps? Amen. That's what that's what this is about, this conversation. Yes. It is. It's about doing better for everybody. Yeah, man. But we had to start with ourselves. But that's so, <laughs> so poignant. You are the best. It does am, begin like, within. It does yes. begin within. It's hard to hold space for other people, for trans women, for women of color, for, for marginalized communities, if you're not holding space for yourself first. Exactly. Again, we have to be the farmer and the goose. Yeah. Take care of the activist and the activist acts, yeah. right? And that's how I see it, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely, Dee. Oh, God, this conversation. I just adore you. This has been Same. so amazing. Thank you for letting me take up a little bit extra of your time. I was just like, oh my God, this is so good. We'll stop it. <laughs> oh my God, are we, I haven't even, I haven't even been paying attention to Tyler here. Like it's amazing. I love having these conversations. I can't believe that you and I are connecting across a continent right now totally aligned yeah totally drinking from the same well and you know what brought us together compelling marketing yes story. <laughs> so like can we just say that this is so connected to our best advice this meeting which is show up speak up about what you stand for yes be you your know? authentic self and show up that way on the most inauthentic platforms right oh my gosh Right? That's our first step and look at the gold. There's a big fat fucking goose egg on the table here and it's there our is, love. And is. it was only made possible because we spoke up about what we care about in a space that doesn't normally care about that shit. So we found each other, go find us. Like, please, if you're listening, Seriously. come and find us. Your people your are people. out there. Yeah, Dee and I are your people, yes. Okay, Shayla, I think you are so rad. And I'm pretty sure that people who are listening think the same thing. So where can they find you? Where can they connect with you? Where can they drink from your well? Oh my goodness, girl, bring a cup and bring an extra Bubba size cup because we have <laughs> two liters of love always. That's two that's liters of love. <laughs> that's American for gallon. <laughs> Beyond the glory. Um, yeah, so we have an awesome website uh, with Shayla.ca or .com. And we also, are, my favorite place to hang out is Instagram at with Shayla. And Shayla is like Che Guevara. So it's C-H-E-L-A and uh, the word with. So it's easy to find us. We're also on Facebook, but get ready. We are about to launch a podcast as well. What? We're so inspired. We're super excited. So look for that coming soon. We'll check, we'll be launching it and promoing it on the socials. But definitely if there's any move you're going to make, head to at with Shayla on Instagram. Awesome. I'll put all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your love, your wisdom, and your awesomeness. Oh, 
thank you for magnetizing me to you with your amazing stuff and for <laughs> you to have done all the work you're doing with amazing women as well. And as a military spouse, I want to thank you for your family and your, their service to your country and to our citizens and our freedom. Oh, so thank you for all, inviting me. And I'm so glad to have had this conversation with you. You are a change maker woman. Likewise. Can't wait to see what else you do for rural women and your rebel army. So have a beautiful rest of your day, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again real soon. Ciao, ciao. If you're ready to execute and achieve your big, bold, unapologetic goals and dreams, join us in the Ambitious Women's Collective Facebook group. It's a space for ambitious leaders, innovators, and change makers. And hey, you belong here too. Come make big things happen with us over at myyeslife.com forward slash group.